I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. We finally get to Charles the Great. And Charles the Great is, so he's actually going to take up two episodes because um, I've been waiting for this for a long time. I have a lot to say, probably too much. So I cut a lot out actually because, yeah, Charles the Great is just one of those figures. He, He had some 52 campaigns. He ruled for some 45 years. Um, just his his wars with the Saxons spanned some 35 years. And, I mean, he waged wars across Western, Central, Southern Europe, fought as diverse of peoples as the Huns, Slavonians, Muslims, Africans, and, of course, other Germanic tribes. Lots of other Germans. And in the last episode, so this is actually part three on my series on the Franks, and I was going to put another one in between uh, the last one and this one to give a lot more details about, um, because it's also really interesting, um, Pippin the Short, who I learned a lot about in school, and maybe that's why I'm jumping ahead, because I think, I don't know, maybe everybody knows this, but I learned a lot about him in school in Germany. Um, Pippin the Short is crucial, but I, I think I'll cover the crucial parts in this episode. So I'll, I'll kind of jump the beginnings of the mayors of the palace. But what I touched upon last episode that I want to mention is that it's officially now Pepin the Short was the king, um, or even even his father um, already had the real power in France in the Frankish realm. And there's just all this drama in the last series because they always the Franks always split their uh, their kingdom up by you know, they give a piece to each child instead of giving one, the whole kingdom to one child or, or often what usually then later happens is the, the oldest son. So it's, yeah, so there was a big mess and it, it I just kind of want to keep moving. And so the one thing to point out is that it, the Pope did officially recognize Pepin the Short as the king and Pepin the Short gifted the Pope a big chunk of Italy in return and that, that was crucial. And so now the mayors of the palace in the in the Merovingian dynasty now become the new dynasty. And, and because of Charles Martel, maybe, and, and then Charles the Great, especially, but definitely because of Charles the Great, it just becomes the Carolingian dynasty. And so now we're definitely talking about the Carolingian Franks. And just to give you the bigger picture, so Carolingian Franks are still Salian Franks, and they're there were still other Frankish tribes of some import, some nobility, really. But now it's really just Salians. If you say the Salians, then, then that's 
you know, that, that equals Franks. But there were other important Franks before and other Frankish areas after, so that's why. Um, yeah, that, that, that's important. Um, so, okay, Carolingians are still Franks, and they're Germanic. And we're still talking, if, if he did have a border, because especially Charles the Great, um, above all, was a moving kind of nomadic king, a king on the road. But, you know, the, the Franks' homeland was still kind of like Belgium and, and that far western part of Germany and par, far northern France, that sort of er, area. And uh, But now their dominion was already much bigger. Okay, so that's... That's kind of where I want to start, actually. And um, so we have the mayors of the palace turning to, to the Carolingian dynasty. They're actually kings now. And I thought I would kind of start with what I learned in school in Germany. Um, and uh, one of the things that we were taught was a, a biographer named Egenhardt, who has the, the, this first Frankish emperor as a stout and strong of body of a lofty stature, so he was a big guy. He was tall. And so in German, Charles the Great is Karl der Große, which can also be Charles the Tall. Charles, you know, the 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 mighty also, the, but like in the sense of great, but also just Charles the Big. So, um, but he was great. So not, okay, so just to keep reading, not yet beyond just proportion, but so he was a really big guy, for his height was clearly not more than seven times the length of his feet. He had the right proportions. <laughs> His head was well-rounded, with his eyes large and piercing, his nose rather long, his luxuriant hair of flaxen hue, and his face bright and pleasant to look upon. His whole person, whether he stood or sat, was marked by grandeur and dignity, and though his neck was full and short, and his body fat, he was otherwise so well-proportioned that these defects passed unnoticed." He was firm in gait, and his appearance was altogether manly, but his refined voice was not entirely in keeping with his figure. So he, he sounded very charming and pleasing and soft, but he had a huge stance, and he was a powerfully built man. That's how my, my, my teacher read me that quote and kind of, you know, painted us that picture, and that's the exact image that I've had in, in my mind of Charlemagne ever since. I kind of picture him as like a um, he's got a, He's got maybe a little bit of a beer belly in later life. He's you know a little overweight, maybe a smidge, um, but he's like oh, he's also like tall. He's maybe six foot six, or maybe he was only six foot if everybody else was shorter than average. You know, I guess people were perhaps shorter back then, but he was like above average height, just a big um, figure, potentially intimidating. But I think he was keenly aware of this and was you know put on a soft face. But okay, so anyway, so I mean, that's that's the image that I've carried of him in my whole life. So I want to paint you that first picture. So we're on the same page there. If it's a wrong one, then we can be wrong together. Okay, so um, the the other thing I want to paint. So the, uh, one note I should make really quick. Next episode is one that's already recorded and out there. So if you just want to jump to that right after this one, or even hit pause and do that instead, um, it's I did it with the Lesser Bonapartes, and they already published it, and I'm going to publish it next. Um, but you can go to the Lesser Bonapartes feed and, and listen to it there. Um, and we just kind of chit chat and, and talk about his legacy and his importance and whether he was, you know, uh, the whether the French kings were his heir or the German kings were his heir and why and that kind of thing. And that was a really interesting conversation, but a totally different direction than than what I'm doing here, which is I'm really giving his biography and I want to really let you know uh, who he was, the, the basics, like what actually happened, um, you know, just to kind of give you the introduction. And then you can go off and, and listen to that more 
uh, just kind of off the cuff uh, talking about stuff about his life, which, you know, really fills in the picture. So I would definitely, I, I would definitely recommend that too. The king, the, the emperor at this time, he wasn't emperor yet, um, but the, the Frankish kings at this time still had a very different court than what you might imagine a king's court to be. So there wasn't a capital city. Um, a court was a transient idea. It was wherever the king was and the people around him were his court. If it was someone's backyard, then that was where the court of, of France, of the Franks was. So, and also, and what that means is that it was more about the people around him. That's what made up the court, not the physical building, not the, cali- the castle or palace where he held court. That didn't matter. What mattered was um, the people in his court. And one of his earlier tutors was an archbishop of Mainz, who's, who's Boniface, which, um, so he learned Latin and Boniface is, is a really important uh, okay, I'll get back to that. I don't want to just jump ahead, but yeah. And then also he had, in the end, nine wives all together with or without the church's sanction. So the the Pope kind of owed him a lot of favors. So he didn't have any of these Henry VIII issues where he had to found his own church. No, on the, on the, you know, on the contrary, he was the defender of the Catholic church and the, and the Pope didn't dare um, say anything either way, really. So um, his, his court, changed on in the noble family depending on who his wife was and that's kind of the point i wanted to make what what life we're talking about um he had one such wife one of his wives was himmel himmeltrude who's oftenly kind of romantically described as fairer than all other women uh like a roman matron in the olden time is one quote and charles did have many many children through these marriages so again, what I did in the last episode is I really summarized the generations because it, it gets re- it's really easy to get lost in the weeds of, okay, now they had four brothers and the kingdom was split into four realms. So just to give you the, the real quick summary at first, so Charles, who was king of Burgundy, died in 811. Carloman, um, then renamed Pepin, uh, was king of Italy, died in 1812. And Louis, king of Aquitaine, became emperor. Then we have Rotrude and Bertha and Gisela as wives. Uh, Gisela went to a convent. So just some of the names I'm going to throw out there because I might mention them in passing and and um, I might, I'm not, I don't really want to explain who all these characters are. But um, another interesting thing, if you're looking at his court and trying to imagine what it was like, so we are talking early medieval times here late 8th century he became it's really easy to remember when he became emperor because he became emperor christmas day in the year 800 that's just one date you'll never forget and but if you try to picture his court think less french or german and think roman um at least kind of a cargo cult uh, you know carbon copy of the roman empire charles was like his father a patricius of rome consecrated by the pope okay so the roman empire no longer existed and they were not had any this was no longer a byzantine ordeal because the byzantines would still call themselves romans um but just like the the frankish federati before him that the, the merolingians actually did were sanctioned the earlier ones were sanctioned by the emperor in rome as a client kingdom of the roman empire and just like that um in that sense they did have a Roman authority in Gaul, but it came from the Pope, not an emperor. And 
So in, in these parallels, if you're going to pretend that you're the Roman Empire, he felt pressure from across the Rhine. Just like the Romans felt pressure from the Franks before them, um, across the Rhine, so much like Caesar before him, he decided to do something about these pesky heathens and, you know, across the Rhine to the east on in what is today Germany. And in, in this case, in the Carolingians and in Charles the Great and in Pepin um, and his father and his son after him, this means marching off against the Saxons. And, okay, there are a lot of Saxon campaigns. I'm going to come back to his court later. Um... Yeah, so I'm going to have to jump around a little bit to paint you the, to give you all the details I want to give you. So I'm, I'm going to try to do this efficiently, but it might be a little bit confusing at first. So let me now paint a picture of what one of these campaigns was like. So the, and, and to give you a date now, so we're talking his early campaign, um, I'll talk of, I'll mention a, a campaign in 772. And in 772, just like in previous years, the Saxons, again, this is this should be the pattern should be very familiar. But instead of it being the Huns and, and now it's the Goths, you know, pushing the Franks, we have the Saxons who are being pushed by Slavs, by Slavonics, and also you could start to call them Vikings. So we definitely have Vikings now um, kind of coming into the northern, like Pomerania and um, the northern coast of Germany the Baltic and the North Sea, and putting pressure, meaning the Saxons want to move more inland, away from rivers, and, and Vikings come way up rivers. They, they loot Frankish territory and are a thorn in the Frank side as well uh, for generations and even dynasties. I mean, this doesn't go away for a while. But at this point, it's the Saxons that feel it, and the Saxons are pushing against the Franks and, and raiding just, just for survival. They're having a really tough time, and the Slavs are pushing from the east and so the franks you know charles decides to push back and charles has a weapon against the germans across the rhine that caesar didn't have and that is christianity so charles um uses religion as a casus belli he takes his role given him by the pope seriously and already even though Charles didn't like it, some of his regal authority came from the Pope in Rome, okay? That's something I've stressed before. I need to bring it up again now because we're episodes away from the Holy Roman Empire, and as the name implies, well, there you go. Okay, so Charles now thought it would be better if his neighbors were all Christians too. And again, I don't want to comment on, on his inner thoughts um, or like many, many other rulers before him or and after him, um, maybe this was just a good excuse to say, okay, we're as, as official protectors of the church, we're going to go out conquer some territory because those guys are pagan. And we're going to, by the way, it's, it's a missionary campaign. We're going to convert as we go. So, and if you did convert the Saxons, there was some real political interest there because maybe they wouldn't raid his own country as much because now we're all fellow brothers of, in Christ, right? So you can stop stealing our pigs and cows. All right. In his first campaign, he marches from Worms to Eresburg, which is near Potterborn, and threw down the idol known as Irminsul. And this is where Bonifacius comes in. I'm going to come back. I'm going to circle back around to this folks. I just want to, because I'm talking about the campaign, but this is this is a super important moment, so I'm going to come back here. Um, Irminsul may have been the pillar set up by Armin, <laughs> Hermann the German, which I, yeah, I love that, uh, near uh, Teutoburg Forest. 
and we've done an, we've done an episode on that. Okay, so um, previous episode. I, I'll come back to this because I'm going to do a whole mini series on the Saxons where I talk about this whole thing from the Saxons' perspective. So now we're talking from the Franks' perspective, and we're just conquering stuff. Okay, so that's that's why I'm jumping here. Um, but okay, so don't. I, I know I'm skipping it now. I have it all thoroughly written out. I, I swear, uh, at least twice. Once, once again, and once from the Saxons' point of view. And it's a crazy good story. I agree. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm coming back to it. Now, the Saxons would remain a thorn, like I've said, in the Franks' side for a long time, decades, thirty years. And unlike other subjugated German tribes, um, the Saxons would eventually come back, and the Kingdom of Germany would later really come to be under them. Hence. Saxon miniseries coming next, ep- not uh, this ep- episode after next. The next one I'm recording is already Saxons. So now, so we have th- the next 30 years, Charles or his sons would send some 23 campaigns against them. On years, basically, so basically every year, if they could, on years when the Franks did not have a Saxon campaign, the Saxons would cross the Rhine and start raiding. So it was, it was out of necessity. In a way, but but don't worry, I'll tell the other side of the story on the on the Saxon miniseries. And sometimes the Franks were very successful in that year's campaign, and they would reach the Slavonians all the way on the other side, even the the, the kind of the Huns and the, the steppe-ish people uh, behind the Saxons. This is the time the Magyars are about to show up in a huge way. And so for now, it's important to note that the Saxon Wars would last 30 years. And it was a kind of a yearly, okay, you know, come back home for the winter camp, and then every spring go out, start a campaign, and see as far as you get. And it would just, there would be um, forced baptisms, forced conversion. And then as soon as they'd leave, they'd all go back to their heathen ways. And then, um, and it was a slaughter. It was just, so I'm, I'm going to give, I'm going to give more details later. But for now, I want to give you a different uh, aspect of Charles the Great. So we'll just jump to the next year, 773. And here's another aspect, another important slice of who Charles the Great was, understanding Charles the Great and the later Saxons and the later Holy Roman Empire and also previous stuff. But okay, so Pope Adrian asks for help against the Arian Lombards. This is a landmark event. This is why I did a whole episode on the Lombards was for this right here. Here it is, folks. Yay. Charles had married a Lombard princess. Again, that's not a big deal. It's one of nine wives. But anyways, and um, he does this over threats of Pope Stephen. And apparently Charles didn't think much of this wife because um, he was pretty cruel. He had her locked up. He then married the Swabian Hildegard. So many lamented this old Lombard queen because in this time, many of the Germanic tribes were like Aryan Christians, just like the Lombards. So everybody thought that having a, a this Catholic Frank marry the Aryan Lombard queen, that this would create some sort of peace finally in Italy and move things along. But no, it didn't. So scratch all that. doesn't even matter. In any case, uh, Desiderius, the Lombard king, which again, if um, I'm not going to read tell you who he is. I did a whole episode on this. Um, he was mad at the Pope for not consecrating other Franks as heirs. And kind of giving Charles the Great a monopoly here. And, and so Desiderius, who was ruling in Italy, power was slipping from him, but he still ruled in Italy. And he had other quarrels with the Pope. He was trying to put pressure on the Pope, but the Pope didn't like this at all. And instead, so 
uh, asked for Charles's help, who heads an army and uh, heads for Rome in 773. In the fall of 773, Charles marches south and besieges Desiderius and Pavia, and then he takes his time. He has his queen come, built a chapel, set up his court locally outside Pavia while he besieged the city. And so, you know, this is a siege and he's just kicking it and he just holds court. Just He made capital. He made the capital of the Frankish Empire the, <laughs> the besieging, you know, military camp outside of Pavia. That's just how Charles the Great was. If he had his queen brought, you know, other nobility came as as the siege drew on. And by Easter the following year, so they spend the, you know, they kind of vacation in northern Italy um, for the winter. It's it's warmer there than the Frankish realm, so why not? And by Easter, uh, Pavia has fallen. And then he basically holds a triumph. So he goes down to Rome, where you know where the meets the Pope victoriously, and holds a triumph in Rome, and was seen as the defender of the Church. Crucial moment from for here on out for the Holy the Holy Roman emperors will look back on this for all time until the early 19th century when they no longer exist. So this right here, crucial moment. He has a triumph in Rome, just like Caesar or, or Augustus would. Charles the Great, a salient Frank, um, you know, marches through Rome like an emperor, okay? There you have it, folks. We're, we're back to the olden days. It's like you turned a time machine 500 years back, except that Rome's population was much smaller and much more insignificant, and it was kind of the Pope that was the leader there. And, and, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, Charles wasn't even, Rome wasn't really part of his empire, so to speak. So yeah, it was just totally different, but they, they really tried to make those parallels. He tried so hard to be Caesar or Augustus in Rome. So while he was the first Frankish king to hold a triumph since the Caesars, he was still not yet emperor of anything at this point. And tons, so this triumph was not like a pagan thing that um, Julius Caesar or Augustus would have held. You know, now you're thinking, you know, Pope-led, Catholic, that sort of thing. So lots of, tons of masses were held at various shrines. They went through all this, the holy sites in in Rome, you know, the sites of St. Peter and, and Paul and those kind of things, and, and um, you know, held masses there. And this there's this just huge pomp and ritual. They really tried to do the best they could. They had this triumphal music, clouds of incense. Um, I mean, they just went all out. Absolutely. I do want to get that. I'm trying to get that across. And even viewing of both ancient pagan relics as well as the newer Christian ones. So they actually, the Pope and King, marched down to to, um, Augustus and Caesar's graves, for instance, tombs, and and uh, which vandals had ransacked, I believe, the pagan sites. Um, you know, some of the Germanic tribes who were already Aryan Christian had, had, but they left churches alone. And Charles the Great, I think it's important to note that he is trying to make a connection to even the old pagan Caesar and Augustus. That's an important thing to note. So they also looked at those old pagan relics, like the bones of the old emperors. And this you know, while this might bring to mind some of the splendor of Imperial Rome, it may hearken to those times. I mean, that's what that was the intent. This was just indeed just a cold calculation by Pope Adrian. And Adrian wanted Charles to confirm Pippin's gift. 
and I just skimmed over it last time, and I'm still just going to skim over it now, but Pippin's Gift is kind of the predecessor, it is it is the precedence that is even today's Vatican City. So the idea that the Pope should have some sort of political power, and there's even, there's a, there's even a Vatican City, you know, collectible Euro coin, and before that, um, before that, the Pope just used the Italian lira. But, you know, and the idea is that they can print their own stamps, they can have their own passports, they can have their own coinage, because they are a sovereign nation. That goes back to Charles the Great's father, Pippin the Short. Okay? So, Adrian. Now, he didn't just let Charles the Great have this triumph in Rome for no reason, just because you know, out of hospitality. I mean, on the, on, the, on the contrary, it was expensive, and it, you know, emptied the coffers of the Pope. But... This was a cold, calculated move. This was, he wanted Charles to confirm his father's gifts. So nominally, it was part of Charles the Great's realm, and he could do with whatever he wanted. But, you know, if he if he can confirm the gift, then the Charles, then uh, the Pope would get the taxes directly himself. He'd have a sovereign nation. He could even field a small little army, um, that kind of thing. So to, in, a, in addition to being a, patri a patrician, since his father's death king of the Franks and defender ecclesiae, like defender of the church, he was also ducks of Rome. He, he was also a Byzantine exarchate. And this is also the historic moment we brought up at the very end of the Lombard episode, where Charlemagne put on the iron crown on his head and proclaimed himself king of the Lombards. He didn't just add the Lombards into the Frankish realm. He's now a dual monarch himself. He is king of the Franks and king of a couple other things, but he's also king of the Lombards. This is an extremely historic moment in history of the Holy Roman Empire and indeed history of Europe and not the most important moment um, Charles would give us in Italy, but but this is like really so it sets a precedent of you know then then later there's he's like king of the Frisians, king of the Burgundians, king of this, and he just adds more and more to his title. And what is a king of kings? Well, they're an emperor. So even this was like he he starts collecting titles. I brought this up before. I explained the Iron Crown at depth. I find the Iron Crown fascinating. I also learned about it in school, the whole history, and I probably bored everybody to death talking about it on the Lombard series. But the reason I emphasized it so much is because how important it is here. Napoleon would get would wear it at a coronation when he crowned himself king of Italy, king of the Italians. And he's following Charles the Great's precedent. So that that is why. So, I mean, this has impacts. Charles doing this has impacts up until the early 19th century. That's why I gave a full detail of what that crown is so that I could purposefully skip it now. And so I will. So, by now the Pope had also given him another title, namely the Great, um, or Carlos Magnus, or Karl der Große, as he was more likely known in his you know, a Frankish dialect, but in German he's Karl der Große, and, you know, Le Mans in French, Charlemagne, which is, by the way, Charlemagne, Charlemagne is Charles the Great, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, and, and Charlemagne, so not to be confused with his father or, or grandfather, Carlo Mann, and even his, he had a brother, Carlo Mann, that changed his name to, to Pippin, all that stuff. 
So yeah, anyways, so the, the title wasn't much of a stretch and he became the great in his own lifetime. He wasn't like, you know, somebody after his death was known as the great. No, no, no. He was like, everybody knew him as Charles the Great. He was the great king, defender of the church, king of kings in a way, because he was, he was collecting those crowns. But anyways, it could, it, it could just, I mean, it could have started out as a, as a kind of a nickname like Charles the Tall, Charles the Big, because he was just a big dude. Anyways, now Pope Adrian wasn't the only one that was doing the manipulating. So um, in order to get bigger, better gifts from Charles, Charles, for his part, also had his own ambitions and didn't just hand over everything promised to the Pope, which made future claims a bit more difficult. And he also now acted as the king of the Lombards and ruled northern Italy in his own way, in his own Carolinian style. And there would be years of strife, in a way, like kind of petty squabble between king and pope. And it wasn't just a cooperation of, I'll conquer you more land if you give me more titles. It was way more a game of chess between king and pope. So there, at no point, and this I, this I really believe, um, they, yeah, this, this, this was not a, a kind of a prearranged arrangement. I do think they were both playing each other and trying to outdo each other. And I think in the end, they both made each other angry and both also both got what they wanted from the other person. Um, so it's just, it's just a great story. Pope and Charles the Great is just fantastic. And it sets a precedent, again, for, for later great stories between German kings and, and German emperors and popes. So, okay. Anyways, let's keep moving. Um... Let's jump ahead a little bit. But 774 was another Saxon invasion year. And every time Charles would smash a pagan site, idol, something, he would set up a chapel with a cross and set up a garrison. And more often than not, the Saxons would immediately come back, kill the garrison, burn the church. And there are just dozens of amazing unwritten stories here. Like those garrisons, each time, I mean, they must... This happened 32 times. They must have known that they're they're going to die. Um, so these are like, you know, extremely courageous volunteers left for the winter. I, I don't know. Like, I'm just trying to imagine um, the circumstances because, you know, the sources aren't that good on um, these kind of details. But I just imagine 32 different Alamo type scenarios where... Uh, the garrisons just hold out as long as they they can and eventually get butchered. And Charles the Great must know this. But that's what they do. So each campaign, um, slowly, slowly, was a bit more successful than the last. And each time, a few more Saxons became Christians. And yeah, we'll even, yeah, sac we'll get to that in the Saxon episode. Now, 776 and 780, he does two more uh, returns to Italy. He had to... In 780, he had to deal with Desiderius' son. So the Lombards weren't quite gone yet. We discussed this in the Lombard episode. So I'm just going to jump all, you know, move ahead. And and remember, there were independent Lombard duchies in the south still that, that helped all of this. And Charles had his son, Carloman Christen Pepin, and named Pepin and Louis uh, kings of Italy and Aquitaine. And Charles had to go back to Rome in 786, which is the fourth... To Italy and third trip to Rome. Okay, but moving right, right, moving right ahead. 777 marks another important year. It was in this year that Charles called a council at Paderborn, and not just Franks from all over the realm came, but also West and East 
Phalians, who are Saxons, and other Saxons, all professing their obedience and loyalty. So 777 is just kind of a consolidate power event. And and all were ready to be baptized. That, that was the thing. Um, the one who was not there was Vitikint, and he's ally of the Frisians and the Danes. And instead of crossing the Elba and looking for Vitikint, the reason I'm just mentioning that even him in passing, because he's in detail in the Saxon episode, um, Charles gives his attention to another visitor at his Paderborn court. Ibn al-Arabi asked for Charles's help against a Muslim foe. Charlemagne saw the glory that his grandfather had gotten against the Muslims coming from Spain and wanted a piece of that too. Remember, it's Charles Martel that beat... This is kind of why the mayors of the palace became the kings. Like one event was, or the reason that he became um, defender of the church, at least I should say, is that Charles Mattel defeated the Muslim invasion in Tours, which is greatly exaggerated by, you know, historians in the past, uh, what Charles Mattel actually did, but it, it became this legendary thing. So Charles the Great already just, you know, wanted to do this. And uh, Charles got the consent of his peoples to, to do this and headed south. And as soon as he left, Vitikint, the Saxon, showed up and took control of everything east of the Rhine again. And But Charles was on a crusade now. He had bigger bigger things to worry about. So he's he's gone. He's, uh, he, 778, he marches across the Pyrenees. He splits his army in two. Um, maybe not quite trusting Al-Arabi, but he crosses in two different places. And he himself marches through Aquitaine and the Pyrenees, while the other army comes more from the east, like Italy, and headed towards um, more towards Barcelona. And they met by Saragossa, as agreed with Al-Arabi, but he did not hand over the city as agreed. Instead, the Saracens, like the Muslims, joined forces against the Christian king and started to harass him on all sides, while Charles is, you know, encamped. Then disease struck... And then the news of the Saxons hit, <laughs> and the Saxons, as the news was reaching Charles, were plundering what they could, ignoring holy and non-holy, and clearly just sending a message of revenge rather than loot. Yeah, actually, this was a pretty bloody campaign that I mentioned in the upcoming Saxon episodes. Um, th this is really, this really is a confederation of Saxons out for blood, because at this point, the Franks had murdered women and children, and, and it was just... It was ugly. So now Charlemagne really may have actually been beat by Muslims forces. Uh, the Muslims really thought so because they offered him a way out. And, and Charles took it and retreated. He, on the way back, he put down a rebellion. Um, there was a, a rebellious duke that had looted, looted the baggage train. And not, not a whole lot is known from, from sources of, of this whole campaign. But what I thought was interesting is that, that these tales were picked up by, by these later French romancers like the Song of Roland, which speaks of this tale, uh, was sung to the Normans on their way to the Battle of Hastings, actually. Sings of this, this, this retreat and the, you know, march to the Saracens and the retreat. There's an interesting connection. There's all kinds of interesting connections further down the road, um, relating back to Charlemagne. So in his lifetime, it might have been nothing, or it might have not even been real. 
but like the Iron Crown, I mentioned a lot of the aspects of it weren't even real. But to them, that's what they believed, and because they believed it, Napoleon believed it. So anyways, the Song of, ha of Roland is another just interesting one. So as, you know, they're marching to Hastings and about to, to conquer England, and they, they sing of these tales. Anyways, sorry, I just lo I love that stuff. Anyway, so according to these later legends, um, the rear guard was attacked. That We're talking about this rebellious Duke Lupus, and the marauders got away. And Charles could only enact his revenge on the rebellious Duke Lupus. So it just, yeah, that's, that's what the song was about. Anyways, if these legends are true, Roland, the king's nephew in charge of the rear guard, was, in fact, eight feet tall, the Vascons are Muslims in this tale and are all slain. And all within reach of his magic sword are slain. Magic sword had the name of Durandal, by the way. And he sounds a blast on his horn so loud it kills all the birds. Oh, no, I'm sure that's all. All those details, I'm sure, are 100% accurate. Charlemagne hears the blast. Other heroes, including a giant archbishop slaying a 100,000 leaving only 50 francs, and those 50 francs are all then slaughtered by a new Muslim force of 50,000. And this is why I prefer primary sources, folks, because, uh, yeah, anyways, they weren't even fighting uh, Muslims at this point. It was, it was other francs. It was, yeah, anyways. So <laughs> Aquitaine was now uh, the kingship of Charles's son, Louis, and it was his job to keep the Pyrenean passes safe from the Moors in Spain. So Charles doesn't really do that again. That was just kind of a bad idea. And he kind of learns his lesson um, and leaves Spain alone. So he doesn't, I mean, yes. So Muslims don't, don't end here. Charles heads off in other directions. What other directions maybe? Oh, let's try east again. Like in 778 and 785, more Saxon campaigns. Some more details to mention here. So he always led his army himself, except in 81 when he was in Rome. Uh, so on, on all these Saxon campaigns, so all but one, he's at the forefront. It's like a hobby of his to go off and slaughter or convert Saxons, but it's, it's a binary. It's either or. And these wars were bloody. Each year, again, Charles entered a place that had already been taken at this point. He'd already called it his in previous years, but he would reconquer it, call the local leaders to the site of slaughter, like to where the last garrison had been killed, and they would then demand that they give up the guilty parties, basically, you know, treating it like a rebellion and, and not like a war, that kind of thing. Now, I mean, okay, just like already 500 years earlier, when Caesar did the same thing and would cross the Rhine, the Germans saw them coming and they just, they fled. So, and the Saxons, even the ones that were, you know, were conquered again by Charles, weren't exactly friendly to the Franks. So they all hid them. I mean, there's just no way to get to them. So the guilty were away in safety, out far outside the reach of Charlemagne. By the, by the time he he crossed the Rhine, they would be across the Elbe, or with the Danes. And Charles would not be satisfied until they handed over all the locals that had joined in. Even, now here's the thing, because the, the ones, the actual culprits were gone, which means eventually the, the locals that were left would have to basically call up some sacrifices. They'd have to find guilty parties from nowhere, apparently. And one story near Osnabrück has, Charles, has Charles's men beheading 1,500 locals 
from dawn till dusk. Like this is like Mongol Mongol invasion type of stuff. But it's all retribution for the previous years, you know, previous winters killing of the garrison. It just happened again and again. Now, the reason I brought up the 1785 was that there was uh, a peace was offered, um, hostages were exchanged, Saxons were baptized, nominally at least, and this is where Vitigus uh, gets baptized, but again, I'm going to deal with him in a Saxon episode. Um, now, this this year, this time, has all been heavily romanticized, um, and I'm going to get back to it, so let's just keep going. And Charles also followed the Roman example of transplanting some of the more troublesome rebels, like the, the worst of the Saxons. He would move them to Gaul or even Italy. Um, as the Romans did before them, you know, the troublesome folk, it's better to, to deport them far away and uh, where they're not, they're not in their own environment and that kind of thing. And now we do see Vikings, the Northmen for real, coming in and making the coasts uh, unsafe. And he would, okay, and now in some of these Saxon campaigns, he did reach far enough east through the Saxons that he got to the Slavonians, the Avars now were here. We're, we're past the Huns by a couple centuries, but the Avars now. And 787, Bavaria. So um, he sent a rebellious duke to a monastery and then went from Augsburg to Ratisbon, which is today's Regensburg. And he stopped the Avars and Huns, basically. I mean, the, the, the Asian steppe peoples for a while. Now, there's lots of wars and battles. Okay. So the Frankish Empire was under attack from all sides during Charlemagne's reign, all the way to his death. So if we just talk about his campaigns, we'll never get to the other stuff he managed to do. And he did a lot. So even before Leo crowned him emperor in 800, we'll get to that, he already had an empire. He consolidated it, and the power of state, or the power of the state, was with him. Like, he carried the power of the state in his pocket, on his person. That's just, that's what made him great. It was just, the history of Italy, Gaul, and Germany were now being changed because of him directly, and forever. He made laws, strengthened the church, encouraged culture and literature. Basically, it's no wonder the Germans and French consider him the father of their nations, in a way. Pope Adrian dies, 795, and the sources tell us Charles mourned him like a father. And a marble slab with Adrian's record in gold letters, which Charles sent to the Vatican, can still be seen there today. And when Pope Leo III was elected, it was with a sort of acknowledgement from Charles in some form. He sent a bishop, uh, like basically confirmed his allegiance. It, it was a two-way street between the, these two offices. And Charles was still a patrician and ducks of Rome. Now, Leo didn't just need his acknowledgement, however, because the, the Pope was a political power, a landholder in central Italy now, and he was by no means strong enough to stay that way on his own. The Byzantines would like their city back, thank you very much, and there were constant threats from around the Mediterranean. In fact, Leo, who was seen as a danger by others in Rome and kind of didn't want the Pope to have temporal power at all, even plotted to kill him. For instance, he was nabbed at the procession of St. Martin and locked up in a monastery. He escaped and news made its way to Charles, who was busy with the Saxons, Okay, now pay close attention. 
Now, Charles sent Leo back to Rome. So Leo escaped Rome, went to Charles, and went back to Rome. Now, this... Okay, so they met. They met once. I want to bring that up because we, we talk about that on the Lesser Bonaparte's episode. Um, whether it was pre-planned, what happens next, or whether it was really spontaneous. Um, but anyway, so he wanted a, a trial to hear both sides. Charles sends Leo back to Rome wanting a trial of the, of the people, you know, sent to plot him and locked him up in a monastery. Okay, now we don't even know the nobility side of this trial. Um, we do know that it went, that the trial didn't go their way. And I hope it's clear that the Pope really needed the Frankish king. So he wouldn't be a Pope. He would be dead without Charles. And so Leo thought of a way to get Charles's loyalty back even more, kind of, you know, even the score a little bit. Okay, but wait, so Charles arrives in Rome. But let me take a break from this and look at some non-war stuff, non-chronological stuff that he's been doing. So let me look. Let me ex describe his government for a second before we get to to him going to Rome, because it's in, it's it's interesting. What did the Frankish Empire look like at that time? What did because we're talking about Germany, France, um, well, France, and kind of getting to be more and more of Germany every year, slowly inching its way east. But we have this. Think of the Rhine as the central highway. That's the kind of central way to travel. That that was the, the main highway of the Frankish Empire, basically. So instead of dividing east and west, the Rhine was really um, where, it, where it started. The Franks came from kind of Belgium near the Rhine. They crossed the Rhine in 406. Um, so the Franks have been, you know, both sides of the Rhine now. And this is their central gateway. This is their, their main economic vain, if anything. So we got like Geneva, Nemejuan, and then Valenciennes, and Paderborn on the east. And twice a year, he'd hold court with the highest nobility. And there, he'd proclaim, kind of let them know the new laws, and ask about the state of the uh, state. <laughs> and more and more often, these will be held in Aachen. But we'll get to that later. So sometimes Nemejuan, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, in Thionville, Worms, Frankfurt, Paderborn, Ratisbon, Regensburg, that's in like far eastern Germany and it's in Bavaria now. Um, Valenciennes, Bologna, which is northern Italy, like all these capitals, all were capitals of his Frankish realm. And as I mentioned, so more and more he kind of focuses on Aachen, but he didn't have a capital. So Aachen was his favorite city. Um, but the strategy here was to constantly be on the move and therefore be able to put down rebellions because he was consolidating power. You know, he was a Frankish king. And, you know, also, just like just like in the Roman days with, you know, Caesar starting out in Gaul, he wanted to be near his troublesome borders. Now, over time, his favorite cities distilled down to Aachen, Ingelheim, which is below Mainz, and Charles loved Aachen and built baths, which must have been huge. He built a palace, which I'll mention later, a basilica, and he abandoned Ravenna, which, um, with Pope Adrian's permission still, and wanted nothing of Theodoric's town anymore. So that was Theodoric's capital in southern um, Fr uh, France. And in last episode, I mentioned the Franks took that over and, you know, uh, yeah 
took over and set up shop basically so yeah they don't they didn't want the theodoric legend anymore they wanted the roman legend and all the roman stuff was carried away to his new projects all the marble several works were brought from rome to aachen so you know like that's one of the reasons i hate the word dark ages because if you're living in rome yeah you probably remember a time when things were better um but for the rest of like north of the alps a lot of this marble the ruins in rome a lot of the marble from italy ended up there um and it just it just bloomed in culture and and even philosophy and literature and and you know laws and all these things just massive reforms and there in no way was it dark ages i i just hate that term and um yeah anyways so i mean now i mean people do speak of the carolinian renaissance which i also talk about in the uh, lesser bonaparte's episode um so next episode um but i mean there's a 12th century renaissance there's all kinds of little renaissance happening now 11th century whatever um so the 12th century one is a big focus of the history of alchemy podcast so yeah there's i mean yeah anyways <laughs> germany got prettier and rome kind of crumbled is my point i guess even like so there's there's a an equestrian statue of a gothic king was moved from ravenna to uh aachen and the basilica is a copy of san vitale in ravenna which is a copy of the holy sepulcher and in fact um caliph harun al-rashid had given the deed of of the holy sepulcher to charles as a gift so he basically owned three technically identical churches and charles courts must have been i sorry i love that fact i just gotta yeah that's awesome anyways charles court must have been a like i kind of yeah so i like just think of a mix of like gallo-roman along with lombard now and because he's the king he's the king of them he's the king of the lombards so he definitely had lombard nobility and and tried to mix them all in with the population newly converted converted saxon nobility now graced his courts other italians so like roman romans along with the highest members of the clergy like the the i mean if you were in charles's court that had more gravitas than being with the pope in rome in many many cases and franks still had issues with coastal celts in Brittany, in fact and we also now see that the the harsh germanic consonants um being mixed with the way that the gaul the gallo romans would kind of mince their words a little bit they minced their latin they're i don't want to call them um i don't know how you say it but like the words kind of got pronounced lazier and lazier over time is how i think about it um they they kind of clipped their latin behind their lips and always you know changed it in their gallic way and this new frankish influence would give us the name of the latin language today french so mix that harsh germanic consonants with the blah, 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 and hey um i hope i didn't just insult a bunch of french people but that's that's what it is and charles never really forgot where the franks came from not the merovingians but from across the rhine some 400 years ago and so for charles it was a constant struggle east it, it just I, I, I like that's why i wish the sources would have you know or i could have picked his brain like personally and ask him like what's going on with you know why the hate for the saxons really 
Um, but there just seems to be this like, well, that's that's our homeland. That's where we're from. We need to go back there. It needs to be ours again. I don't know, but he was just incessant. Um, anyways, so back to the Pope escaping his assassins and being put back on the papal throne by Charles when he's sent to Rome. Okay, so now Charles is now in Rome in November of 800. And Charles arrives in Italy at the head of an army to kind of restore order and make sure everything's fine. And a few days later, at the Feast of the Nativity, the Pope sneaks up behind Charles with a crown. And, you know, so he's at the Nativity, he's bowing to the Nativity, kind of praying. And the Pope uses this bowing motion and bam, suddenly crowns him emperor. Seriously, like that's what happened. And basically, okay, now the emperor saw this coming. This is why I said chess earlier, because it's really hard to pick this apart. Um, I My teacher explained it one way, and I later found that's kind of, that was really simplified, and I tried to get to the bottom of this, and there's just all these theories and versions. That's why I mentioned they met before. They met in person before, so this could have all been prearranged. That's one theory. People definitely, historians believe this. Another just as valid theory is that, uh, and this is what my teacher said. So my teacher said that she, that uh, Charles took offense to this. He was mad. He would have rather given himself the authority and not rely on the Pope. Um, now, others have pointed out that, well, so Charles would say that he was mad. He would fake it. He would uh, say, oh, you, you crown me. Uh, how, you know, how dare you? I don't, I'm not worthy or that kind of thing. But it's just, it's just for show that of course this was all prearranged and that's all part of the spiel. Like, I don't know. Anyways, so I've, I've heard this debated all the way from my fifth grade history teacher to some folks on Reddit. Um, the, basically the emperor needed to kneel at the nativity. And as he did, that's when the Pope whipped out the crown and just held a flash coronation. And Charles was now emperor and apparently not amused at the Pope's shenanigans. He protested but was overruled. And this would now set a precedent between German kings and emperors and popes. This is it, folks. We have a Germanic emperor crowned by a pope in Rome. Okay. But as my fifth grade teacher would like you to know, some of his men were already sending him messages addressed to the emperor and his sons etc were all there for his coronation in rome on christmas which seems like a mighty coincidence so it looks like it was gonna it was going to happen and maybe just charles didn't like the fact that he wanted to do it himself and you know i don't know now on the other hand this could have all been played by pope and charles since potterborn where they met and we do have some sources that even say this. Uh, Johannes Diakonos says, like, they discussed the coronation a year in advance or so. So the reluctance of the king and no separate ceremony other than the nativity one, where everyone just happened to be attending, was just not to infuriate the Byzantines. That's why it was a sudden move. Um yeah, I don't know. So just, you know, that way they, they wouldn't, because Byzantines considered themselves the sole authority of Rome, period, even if they didn't actually possess Rome at the moment. Now, this is not arguably a continuation of Rome, or even a rebirth of Rome, or Rome moved to Aachen. I, like, I definitely want to make that point here, because if I don't, people are going to crucify me for all kinds of um, simplifications. So this is Yes, so the the Pope 
named him emperor in Rome. That does that doesn't mean that he's the Roman emperor, at, at, like the Roman emperor of antiquity. The Germans would love it if the if people considered. I mean, the the Germans of the Holy Roman Empire. That's what they thought. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying their very hardest to make Rome Rome again. Um, but no, that, that that's not just what happened. Charles didn't see it this way, is my point. So later emperors might have tried to move it in this direction, but no. And Charles is also not really the first Holy Roman Emperor, and this is not really the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. So, okay, I want to make that clear. This is the beginning of the Frankish Empire. And so as France is still known today as Frankreich in German, the Frankish Reich, the Frankish Empire, this is the beginning of that. This is the beginning of France. And for Germans, it would still be a while before we get to the Holy Roman Empire itself. So I, I just want to clarify this as we go, because um, there's, I know there's a lot of confusion, or I've come across confusion in, in the past of like, what's the difference, you know, or people just calling Charlemagne a Holy Ro the first Holy Roman Empire. He wasn't. I'll get to the first Holy Roman Emperor later. Um, and now for the Romans, he was emperor of the Romans, not Roman emperor. And those little tiny words is so important. And those little tiny words is what makes the Holy Roman Empire so confusing. Because later we would have emperor of the Germans and not the German emperor. And that would be super critical because if you said German emperor, you'd have all kinds of Bavarian noblemen and Austrians and what whatnot being like super offended for some reason, like just... That's the difference. So there, you're not my, you might be my personal emperor, but you're not the emperor of my realm kind of thing. So you're the emperor, you're the empire, you're the emperor of all the people, but not the empire, not the emperor in the Romans, not the way Augustus was. And politically, so that has to matter, folks. I have to emphasize this because we're going to be dealing with this for the next thousand years. Exactly a thousand, seventeen years or so. Um, so, so that's why these little words are going to come back and forth. When a German uh, claims to be German emperor, that's a very strong statement that the nobility would often not agree with. So, um, yeah, anyway. Okay. So this is the first time I mentioned it. This will not be the last time I mention it. That's why emperor of the Romans, not Roman emperor. He was also king of the Lombards, not, you know, king of Italy. He, he, later Germans would also be king of the Italians, not king of Italy, um, because king of it. Yeah, they weren't. I mean, that was, there's a there is a big difference. OK, now it was simply another title he collected anyways. So he's now also he, he's king of the Lombards and emperor of the Romans, king of the Franks, etc. So it just so happened to be the highest ranking title that he collected. I mean, this just goes with his normal title collecting, really just the the one that crowns it all. Um, when in Rome, he lived simply near St. Peter's. And basically, he lived near in, in the Vatican near the Pope, like very humbly. And he didn't restore the emperor's palace in Rome or anything like that. And he had no such ambitions. I want to make that clear because later emperors would just flat out change history and say that he did the opposite and that he tried to show himself as a Roman emperor. He was not a Roman emperor. He, he tried to not be like one. He was emperor of the Romans and politically, even for the Byzantines, um, that distinction was very important. So saying Roman empire would be kind of suicidal. It, it, what, like, it seems like a small difference, but it's not. Okay, 
Now, anyways, you guys are starting to get it. Just, just trust me, big difference, big difference. You'll see why. Apparently no reason right now, but it will come back later. And, yeah, and in fact, some chronologies would have him as the 68th emperor after Augustus, right after Constantine IV and Nisiphorus. So yeah, so they really tried. They really tried. Charles the Great himself didn't see it like that. That's my point. That, that That's a later historical farce to make the Holy Roman Empire uh, more legit, that kind of thing. Okay, anyways, so Frankish Enlightenment. Let's talk about that, the Carolingian Enlightenment. Um, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, they were all taught again. And a really interesting thing that my teacher would would have you know, as far as law, like in many ways, this was a continuation of Germanic law being written down. We talked about that in the last episode with Frankish law. But Charles ruled like an autocrat. And I, okay, so the reason his court is so interesting to me. So what he would do is he'd meet with his advisors and then lay down the law in the General Assembly. So he wouldn't just dictate everything. He would meet, you know, and he got some really good advice. He, he surrounded himself with really smart people and would, you know, try to put something together and then he would go out and announce it. And, would, and then what he said was law. And people would then write it down and spread it throughout the land. And he also basically, he was such a humble emperor compared to like... Um, Compared to emperors like Diocletian, who had all this kind of uh, mystery about them and, you know, doors and, and doors between you and the common folk, Charles would talk to whoever needed to bend his ear, greeted people he hadn't seen in a long time, and often his court was just held outside whenever possible. So just kind of walking around a picnic, um, strolling around a field, and just kind of... Um, managing by walking that's that's a you know it's a it's a management tactic and charles used it and i you know just think of a kind of a cocktail party and he just kind of socialized and that's how he ruled he just would you know one-on-ones with people figure out what the, where the problem is walk over to the next table and solve the issue and if you're going to be emperor you know be james bond about it i mean for sure when the king was present everyone had to attend otherwise the Ecclesiastical had their separate accommodations apart from the laity, and the higher nobility had their own apart from the lower, and there was entertainment for sometimes separately, and when the king was there altogether, um, and if indoors, also in separate rooms. As that's I thought, I thought was interesting because that really paints a picture of kind of the the affairs of the court. So you'd be outside when possible, all kind of segregated, but when the king shows up, everyone gets together and there's the entertainment. Um, it's just fantastic. Anyway, so the king had a lot of meetings over lunch, basically, seriously. Uh, he had a general assembly. Uh, there was the Council of the Franks, I guess that you could call them either. And this included a senate, seniores, and divided by the clergy, laity, and then these independent powers of discussion of law, which then Charles laid down. So you had these independent kind of task forces of uh, lawmakers. And they could question the king. They could propose amendments, call for evidence, um, ask for the king's personal attendance, you know, like just summon the king. And But in the end, Charles could do whatever he see, see fit. I mean, he just, you know, he, lay, he put down the groundworks to be fair, but he could trump, trump whatever he w wanted. He was a powerful autocrat. He was a dictator, to be sure, but a, but a very merciful and just dictator. 
And there were the dukes and counts, as well as the clergy, and from all parts of the empire, even before the kingdom. I mean, this was a, a Frankish tradition. And if the Senate was like... If it was like the board of directors, then then the noble council would be like the vice presidents. The VP would report on their local area. Uh, maybe they were more like a local, like an area sales manager, but they would kind of give the local report to the king and feed it up the chain of command, that kind of thing, run like a big corporation in a way. So they would all meet with the king, report local trouble. They would also be the head of the local peacekeeping force, the sheriffs, etc. And, you know, the, the folks that put down the local uprisings. And in reality, the Senate was more kind of from the core of his kingdom. Now, this is actually really important for Franks uh, in general. So the second body of nobility and clergy were lower rank or from further away, like from the troublesome areas. They might be Italians or Gauls or uh, Saxons even, um, and even guests from England and, and who knows where. But but the, the top Senate, those were all Franks from the core Frankish area, mostly Salians themselves. Um, yeah, so there was kind of two ranks of nobility there. Th that's important to note. So there, there, there was a voice, even if you were newly conquered, you had a voice. You had, you were one of the VPs, you were one of the assembly, but not the Senate. And okay, so about his laws, because he had over, over his span of his law reforming uh, career, there's a lot. There's 65 capitularies attributed to Charlemagne, 1,151 separate articles. Um, and a separate podcast, totally separate podcast in German, I mentioned that the Iroquois constitution had 119 or something. Like Charlemagne really went to town. And to break that down a little bit, because um, what, so what did he, what did he lay down into law? Because it was kind of scattered all over the place. It was not a codex. It was not a, a codified law. It was just random, like he would walk out and be like, today, you know, I declare um, that pink shoes on Wednesday, not quite that eccentric, but 87 were moral, 293 political, 130 penal, like punitive, no civil at all, 85 were religious, 305 canonical, 73 domestic, and 12 to particular incidents, like no pink shoes on Wednesday. No, that's not a real one though, but th that would be like, I don't know. He, someone, someone made him angry and he's like, Pete, I don't ever want you to say that again. And because he said it, that became law and he had to write it down. But no classification, no system. Like as issues came up, he was more like a sports guy where he would troubleshoot them and then, you know, write down the, in the troubleshooting guide. Um, that's how I relate to it, <laughs> right? Write down the uh, knowledge base article and uh, write down the, the steps how to solve the issue. That's the law. So no, no system or, or classification. One of these laws, for instance, says that prayer is effective in any language. Charlemagne said so. So you, like Charlemagne just said, no, you don't have to just pray in Latin. God speaks all languages. Like just Charlemagne said so. That was law then. And in 802, he lays down a separate law regarding uh, swearing allegiance to him as emperor, not just as king. And everybody has to come back to his court, wherever he was at that time, and do that. Everyone 12 and older, clergy or not, must swear him as Caesar or Kaiser in the Frankish dialect. Uh-huh. And, I mean, he had 
really the the best and brightest that he could so if if you were a monk somewhere if you were a bright person somewhere you wanted to be in charles's court because that's where the other best and brightest were that's where you were appreciated the most he was the only patron at the time you know really really ordering this um and the other episode episode we talk about the the what was it called? Frankish minuscule. The that that very first font. This happened during Charlemagne's reign. The font, that black letter, that what, what we would call like it's like the font, um, gothic, gothic font, um, but black letter typeface or you know if you do calligraphy, it's like more like black letter. That's Frankish, and and that he did that to standardize everything, to just make everything legible. You wouldn't have fifty different versions of an I and fifty different versions of a G. You just have one standardized alphabet. That was Charlemagne. And you had in his court, I already mentioned Hebrew and Latin, all that stuff, but he also taught you know, people t- teaching Virgil. Um, he, Charlemagne himself attempted to learn to write. He was never really fluent. He was like famously a bad reader and writer, but but he did try. He could, you know, probably in the end of his life, read and write like a first or second grader, like, you know, very poorly, but he could do it. He could, he could fight through it. Um, a letter between Alcuin, who's a missionary to the Frisians and Saxons, but from York, gives us a great example of early medieval schooling, which is preserved in his lessons to Charles's son, Pepin. And we have grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, music, geometry, astronomy. And through Alcuin, we have the Caroline script. Okay, now the School of Paris was founded in this time, which would become the University of Paris and the headquarters of scholasticism. So I just, I just ah, dark ages. And towards the end of Charlemagne's life, he still witnesses the very beginnings of the Northmen raids. The Vikings are a coming. And there were basically a dozen little wars along his borders at all times, right up until the end. He fought the Muslims and kicked them out of Corsica. He fought the Greeks in Dalmatia, which is Croatia today. He fought Bohemians. He then actually retired and prepared his succession. Yay! He crowned his son, Louis, co-emperor, and went off hunting, came back, and died of old age. Well, so, I mean, he got a fever and basically probably starved himself to death, as was the cure at the time, really. So, yeah, that's kind of... I, yeah, Old medicine is great. Listen to the History of Alchemy podcast. He died, but still, he died at the age of 72, which is pretty good for that for that time. And in the 47th year of his reign, so he definitely had a full reign and that's it for this episode uh next episode will be another uh one about charles the great but much more back and forth so if you haven't heard the lesser bonaparts they're a great podcast it's glenn and dan just kind of chat back and forth much less scripted less formal much more like they have a fantastic sense of humor they're hilarious i love their show um but but so we kind of did a a show together and we just talked about because they also covered the franks by the way i should probably mention that too they also did a frankish mini series and again a totally different take on them than than what i'm talking about um so uh probably much funnier also uh less detailed maybe but more humor so i would recommend it because there's not a lot of overlap and they really take the whole thing as the predecessors of france and i'm really looking at this from the predecessor of germany so uh, yeah it's great um listen to that too and then i'll do charlemagne and then i gotta look how i'm gonna split i want to get to the saxons 
relatively quickly. So I don't know if I'll do one more wrap-up summary show of the Franks and then do the Saxons. Or the next show I might record might already be Saxons 1, which is already written. All the Saxons episodes are ready to go. So buckle up. We'll, we'll get through these pretty quick and get to the Holy Roman Empire proper very soon. And then I got a couple of more special episodes coming that just have to do with the Middle Ages because now we're just in the high Middle Ages coming up pretty soon with the Saxons. So lots and lots to look forward to. We're really just getting started with the history of Germany as a whole. So this is like episode 32. We're okay. Next in the next within the next three, four episodes, I'm going to mention the kingdom of Germany as a thing for the first time. And we're going to start speaking of Germany instead of messing around with Frank Frankish empire and Germanic tribes and this stuff. We're going to start talking about Germany. Here we go. Coming up soon on the history of Germany podcast. And we are a member of the Agora podcast network. The podcast of the month is David Crowther's History of England podcast. And go take a look at all my other podcasts on podcastnick.com, History of Alchemy, Bohemican, um, the German version of this show, or Americana für euch. The Secret Cabinet is a fantastic show that I translate from German. Um, it's got great ratings and review. It's just history a little differently told. Um, I, I love them. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of The Secret Cabinet, and that's why I translate it. And I highly recommend all those shows like Why Hitler, Did Hitler Only Have One Testicle? That kind of thing. So there's some history of Germany overlap there. Um, a, lot of, a lot of great topics um, from history that museums would hide away in secret cabinets in the past. That kind of thing. Like the, yeah, I don't want to, <laughs> I won't give any more away because I'll have to mark this show as explicit, but it's a great show. Anyways, until next time. So next time, another Charlemagne, then Saxons. Thank you very much for listening. Auf Wiedersehen und bis zum nächsten Mal. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.